Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordletto, media editor for FNS Reports. And as always, I'm joined by the dynamic duo, Dalen James, Blake Evans, and our executive producer, Molly Cornfield. You three, how are you? We're a duo, apparently, which is pretty weird, but I'm I'm down for that header carry on action, as long as it's these two I'm conjoined to. Guys, it's great to be here. Good to see you all. Good to see you guys. Happy New Year. Oh, it's about to get even happier. We have some science to talk about today. We're going to cover some ground. We we try to link topics across the journals, but as you can imagine, it's uh, not always successful. So we have two that I think make sense to talk about together in mind. That's going to be a, a bit of a pivot, but I think very interesting. I'm going to start off with Dale on this month, and I want you to tell us a little bit about defects in protective cytokine profiles. What does that mean and what does one do with that information as it relates to miscarriage? Dalon, take it away. Well, yes, that's the question. I mean, you, you just started with the end, but I'm going to catch up here in a minute. Uh, I don't have to tell you three who have collectively delivered like a half a million babies that threatened miscarriage is the most frequent complication of pregnancy. As many as a quarter have the threat of miscarriage. And among these, around 15% progress to pregnancy loss and a whopping 85% show increased rate of adverse pregnancy outcomes. I might want to check the stats there, but I'm around the right numbers according to, to my reading. Preterm delivery, premature rupture, membranes, placental abnormalities, all that stuff. But while these are all lumped to, into one group, the etiologies of threat and miscarriage are obviously diverse, whether it's embryo intrinsic factors, immunologic or endocrine dysfunction, the why behind it varies. And although there are clear associations between serum factors like progesterone and increased risk of miscarriage, the diversity of underlying causes makes prediction or early detection a major challenge. But th there's good reason to believe that the information is there circulating in maternal serum in that first trimester, because this is the critical period when you have placentation, trophoblast differentiation, endocrine hormones and immune cells are blasting a slew of cytokines and growth factors into circulation. So, you know, on a very real level, pregnancy is just a tightly regulated systemic inflammatory response. And both the normal and pathologic events during implantation or early pregnancy ought to be reflected in the serum. So that's the rationale for all these approaches, looking at circulating factors, it should reveal something, in my opinion, as long as the resolution is fine enough. So that was the intent of Chi Wai Ku and Yi Hao Li at the Duke Medical School in the National University of Singapore, who went pretty big, in my opinion, looking at a panel of 65 serum cytokines and their correlation with miscarriage outcomes. In the study, they recruited two clinical groups, women presenting to antenatal clinics for, for routine follow-up and women who presented with threatened miscarriage. The threatened miscarriage group was then separated into women who had ongoing pregnancy or had miscarried by 16 weeks. That was the point of uh, analysis, although they took serum anywhere between five and eight weeks when these patients presented, or three and eight weeks, a, a pretty wide range there. 
Finally, the women who, who miscarried were further separated into high and low risk groups, that is having progesterone levels below or above 35 nanomolar respectively. So among these groups, they use this pro-cartaplex immunoassay platform that's from in vitrogen to multiplex 65 secreted factors. You can go up to like 90 in these approaches, these multiplex approaches. Um, and these factors, they range pretty broadly. A ton of growth factors, immunomodulatory cytokines, angiogenic migratory factors, tissue modelers, you know, the whole gamut. Uh, and the results were interesting. First, we should address some significant differences in the overall patient population which were kind of interesting and a little bit weird uh, in terms of interpretation of the results. The time of presentation among threatened miscarriage versus normal pregnant women was different with the threatened miscarriage patients uh, presenting two to three weeks earlier. And that's when they were taking the blood and uh, eventual serum. So that's a factor. Normal pregnant women also had a significantly lower BMI and more women in the threatened miscarriage group had previously suffered a miscarriage, uh, as you might imagine. With regards to the cytokine profiling, there were significant differences as well. It's a long list, so I'm not going to itemize, but the focus was on the stark comparison of normal pregnancy with the miscarry group. And then there was a more subtle comparison among women with threatened miscarriage that ended up with the ongoing pregnancy versus those that miscarried uh, and the pathway analysis in all of this and all these matrices of analysis uh, that put the cytokines into their kind of functional context implicated biologic signaling pathways related to immune cells, maternal fetal tolerance, right? So ultimately, the authors concluded that there was a attenuated uh, inflammatory response among women with threatened miscarriage, and that was associated with eventual miscarriage. So that was kind of counterintuitive. And in my opinion, there's a lot of these efforts going on, in my opinion, make, making sense of these multiplex assays in this outbred non-mouse group of patients. It's always a real challenge and often leads to like this whole matrix of data that's hard to translate into anything that's clinically valuable. So I, I give a lot of credit to the authors for consolidating this data into a coherent hypothesis, that being that a robust inflammatory response in early pregnancy is protective. However, I'll say that this is a pilot study and future analysis will benefit from a more refined patient cohort. Ultimately, I believe we will have prognostic insight from a, a drop of blood, you know, Gattaca style. But uh, I ask you guys, I mean, it's going to take a lot of tech before we get there, but I ask you guys who are in practice, what do we do? You know, again, coming back to your question, Pietro, I think you have a unique insight into this from our work together. What do we do with this information? And assuming the approach would be limited to predicting and not an intervention in the course of eventual miscarriage, what is the value of this information? That's the tricky part, right, Dalon? What does the patient actually care about? Does the patient want to know the positive predictive value of the serum biomarker to predict their miscarriage? Do they want the, the negative predictive value of the serum biomarker? I have to imagine that the patient wants to know what can you do to change the outcome of this pregnancy? And if you think that this is a pregnancy that's threatened miscarriage at risk for ongoing bleeding and loss, what could you do now to help change that? Because if your blood test is going to tell me, yeah, the risk is high, it's not going to make me feel a whole lot better. And if you're going to tell me, no, the risk is low, but I'm still bleeding or still cramping, that's not going to make me feel better either. I think we really, my eyes as the person having to tell the patient this stuff, are really geared towards the, what do we 
do with this information? And is there an intervention that can change this? I like this idea of inflammation and the balance of inflammation. When I see patients with recurrent miscarriage, my counseling is all about inflammation is a battle that's happening in your uterus. There are both pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory things that need to happen. And inflammation is a normal part of the implantation process. But when it's left unchecked, when it's out of control, when there are other players that show up to the uterus to modify how inflammation is happening in kind of a tightly orchestrated way, that's where we get into problems. That's where we have implantation failures. That's why we have recurrent losses. I think we're just scratching the surface of this inflammatory milieu of the uterus. And I think this paper scratches the surface. Blake's paper is going to scratch it a little bit. I'm, I'm looking for what do we do with it? How can we modify and how can we orchestrate inflammation a little bit more tightly in the uterus for these patients to really move the dial from a clinical outcome perspective? Yeah, good points, Pietro. I think that eventually we'll be there on the story of cytokines and inflammation. You know, obviously we know currently that's not the recommended way of testing or anecdotally treating with these patients because we don't really exactly know what these things mean. I mean, there's 65 cytokines that were analyzed in this paper. Uh, even I think I counted there were seven of which they said were significantly different between the two groups, but seeing them teased out and maybe focusing on a larger scale, looking at one at a time, do these things actually make a difference as opposed to lumping them together? You know, again, we're kind of slowly inching towards maybe some more light on this topic. Uh, still not quite there yet, but it certainly would be uh, it'd be nice eventually when we can have more of an answer as to what these things even mean. How do we treat them? Is there a medication that we give to help reduce all of these inflammatory cytokines? Or do we, in fact, want them around? Like you said, there's some good aspects of these cytokines and some bad aspects. So I think the picture is still a little uh, muddied, but eventually, uh, eventually we'll get there, I think. Yeah, agree. And, you know, you need only look at the introduction of this paper to see how many cytokines growth factors have been implicated in uh, pregnancy loss before. So this adds to that list, and I think it has a more refined approach. But whether or not we can have a standardized language uh, across all these assays and whether one of these studies relates well to another, I think we, we need a common language here to relate these studies. And I think that's... um. Part of what, uh, Blake, you're going to be talking to us about in your studies, isn't that right? Blake, run with this. Tell me how your article in FNS Reviews adds to this story. I am going to run with this. So uh, the title of this paper I'm going to discuss is Accuracy and Utility of Blood and Urine Biomarkers for the Non-Invasive Diagnosis of Endometriosis, a Systematic Literature Review and Meta-Analysis. And this is by first author Dolinska et al. at the University of Hull in England. And to dive into endometriosis, we all are way too unfortunately familiar with this diagnosis, a chronic condition that we know of that can be associated with debilitating pelvic pain as well as infertility. It can affect up to one in 10 women, and it's very prevalent in our infertility patients. It's a straw that no one should have to be dealt, but unfortunately, a lot of women are. As we know, endometrial glands and stroma are located outside of the uterus, and symptoms are dependent on largely the location. Uh, the degree of invasion and the extent of adhesions that possibly form from this disease. And this leads to very unpleasant symptoms that we are very familiar with, such as dysmenorrhea, pain with intercourse, pain with bowel movements, GI disturbances, uh, infertility, of course. And this can, of course, also lead to anxiety and depression because of this culmination of different symptoms. Although surgical diagnosis with histologic confirmation is considered to be the gold standard for diagnosis, 
This does not come without inherent risk of surgery, as well as cost of surgery also. We know that the number needed to treat to improve fertility is about one in 50. And so we don't typically say, let's do a laparoscopy on every patient because of this reason. However, I will say having a simple to collect non-invasive test to diagnose endometriosis, for example, with the blood and urine, as we're going to discuss in this study, would be very convenient to have. I'm sure we could all agree. So in light of this, the authors of this paper sought to review the clinical potential utility of these biomarkers. And so I'm going to be going over uh, urine and blood biomarkers. There are studies that we know of that are endometrial tests, but this study does not delve into those. So discussing a little bit of the methods, this was a systematic review of the literature, and uh, the research studies examined blood or urine biomarkers in humans. There are 3,000 studies that were screened, but ultimately included 19 articles. All studies were case-controlled and compared urine and blood biomarkers in patients with endometriosis to a control group. You know, women were of reproductive age, and the number of patients in each study ranged anywhere between 40 and 1,900. Now, obviously, you're going to have a hard time recruiting asymptomatic patients to undergo a laparoscopy just to say whether or not you have endometriosis and label them in the control group. So the included studies had to get a little creative regarding the control group. So they ultimately looked at 58 potential biomarkers that were investigated. However, only seven were assessed in more than one paper. CA125, which we know is a marker of epithelial cell ovarian cancer, was the most widely investigated, which was interesting to me. But its sensitivity and specificity had very wide ranges. These numbers were also not reported in all of the papers analyzed. And as we know that almost anything that ends in itis or osis can lead to elevation in CA125. There are a lot of things that end in itis and osis, so this is a very non-specific marker, despite it being mentioned in several papers. Other markers that were analyzed, some of which Daylon had mentioned, were interleukins, such as IL-6, CA-199, P-selectin, NLA, CK-19. The list goes on and on. There's quite an extensive list, which I'll encourage you guys to go back and read over. However, many had non-significant differences compared to the control group. Patients had different selection criteria in the studies, and there was a lack of reproducibility in these studies as well. Some studies also collected samples at different phases of the menstrual cycle, which resulted in very unreliable results. A lot of these markers vary quite a bit at different portions or uh, different aspects of the menstrual cycle. They also looked at micro-NRNAs, and these regulate pathways involved in proliferation, inflammation, and angiogenesis, which as we know are big key players in endometriosis. And some of the studies evaluated this blood marker of micro-mRNAs to show promising results, but there were some flaws in the statistical analyses that the authors pointed out as well. And they also had varying times which the samples were obtained in the menstrual cycle. Likelihood ratios were calculated for 35 of the biomarkers, but only four of them had a likelihood ratio above 10, which the authors had determined suggests significant strong evidence of endometriosis based off of their analyses, which again, I encourage you to go back and look at. Many of the biomarkers I have not heard of, but the ones that they continued to say did have a significant difference between the endo patients and control were SLP2A, TMOD3, TOMD3. Uh, again, things I haven't necessarily heard of, but these are the ones that continually did come up showing that there is a difference. And the authors do acknowledge that these biomarkers need further validation in larger patient numbers. So overall, the authors note that even in those biomarkers that do in fact show a difference in the patients with endo and the control group, 
Uh, a lot of these studies did not provide power calculations and they say the larger sample sizes were needed. So in conclusion, there are currently no non-invasive biomarkers for the detection of endometriosis with adequate sensitivity and specificity to be utilized in clinical practice. Multiple biomarkers described here provide exciting avenues for further study. We all want these things to be something we can easily test in the blood and urine, do non-invasive tests to find out if they have endometriosis. And this paper does provide a framework for avenues we need to exploit. However, we're just not quite there yet. So again, kind of similar to our last paper we discussed, some promising avenues, some things that we are, are starting to recognize, maybe we can exploit further, but we're just not quite there yet. And still, they at the end of this, authors acknowledge that the gold standard still remains to be laparoscopy with visualization of lesions and biopsies. So uh, PHRC shaking your head and uh, a little bit of discernment there. What's going on? What do you think, man? I feel like we're all missing the boat here on non-invasive diagnosis of endometriosis. There's pockets of experts working on different tools, serum biomarkers, biomarkers in menstrual effluent, looking at ultrasound diagnosis, uh, geneticists looking at um, inheritable factors, polygenic risk factors for endometriosis inheritance. I think what we're missing out here is we have a bunch of different non-invasive tools that are pretty good. No one's managed to really put them together and go and collectively move the dial closer to very good. And what if we could really synthesize high quality pelvic ultrasound, uh, a patient history, add in a family history there, and then add in some of these biomarkers that in isolation don't stand on their own two feet as strong, but maybe with all of this other information can really get us that slam dunk like, yeah, you probably have endometriosis and would benefit from a laparoscopy or help us point that patient away from that diagnosis and get them to that more holistic approach to pelvic pain, myofascial pain, pelvic floor dysfunction, things that aren't endometriosis that can cause pain in the pelvic floor. I'm excited for the group that's going to put it all together rather than these teams that are working on this in bits and pieces. I'm really bullish on ultrasound. I think moderate to severe endometriosis, you can, the data's there. It's, it's happening in real world. The U.S. is catching up slowly to what the Europeans and the Australians have been doing for a while now, particularly the, even the Italians and the Brazilians. There's a lot of people that have been using non-invasive ultrasound. I think the biomarkers are up and coming, but pair them together. We, we got to get better at this. We got to get faster at this. This is a really terrible progressive disease that impacts us as fertility specialists, but impacts the patient's life, quality of life um, way more. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great assessment, Pietro, about like out, outside the box. Let's get outside the box. Maybe the solution is going to come out of nowhere. I think that a lot of people have been looking for this language, right? Uh, similar to genomics, where it really is just ATGC, right? So there's a uniform language, but it's difficult when you're talking about proteomics and and maybe that day will come. But I think absent that, uh, yeah, the imaging techniques, maybe ultrasound, but also think about using immunoassay combined with imaging. There's ways I think that we can combine the tech to, to visualize uh, the presence of, of things and detect them within the body you know, using near-infrared, which was part of your thesis work there too, uh, Pietro. I mean, you're on fire today. But I, I think, yes, as you said, a, a solution coming out of left field maybe is what we're due for. 
But what we're all seeking here in these stories with the serum biomarkers is a common language that I think is going to be really difficult to exert across all of these studies, across many different assays and time. But let me ask you this, Molly, I'll ask you this. What is the end game? You talk about Pietro, talk about a degenerative condition over the lifetime of patients. Oftentimes, as I've heard, I don't know firsthand, but I've heard it's like a cult, right? You don't know there's, uh, there's endo in there until you go in for another reason. Are we talking about end game if we did have an approach where you could diagnose it with some fidelity about screening as soon as women go through you know, puberty, if we could do that and it was cost efficient? Are we talking about that level uh, of surveillance? Would it be a benefit to the patient in your view? I think we see some of the worst cases of endometriosis in the patients who were relatively asymptomatic, maybe some mild dysmenorrhea, and they're the ones who present with stage three or four and pretty significant impacts on their fertility. I think we've tried to create these multimodal approaches like Pietro's talking about with ovarian cancer with varying success or when you're working up an adnexal mass using our ultrasound findings compared with blood work. And I'd love to see that rest for endometriosis. I think that's a great idea. I also think our um, clinical care for fertility patients would greatly increase if we had more endometriosis diagnoses. I know that sort of goes back to the days when every person got a scope always, but you know, 25% of my unexplained infertility patients probably have endometriosis. And how is that affecting studies that we're doing um, on cycle types, embryo transfer types, uh, dosing of meds? Um, and if we can find an easier way to diagnose everyone without surgery, that would really improve research as well. Amen. Molly Cornfield for president. I couldn't agree more. Unexplained infertility is only unexplained until you look in the pelvis. And boy, do I love that stat. 25% of the time, it's going to be endo. And we can diagnose this. We have a tool for this. It's obvious. We just stopped doing surgery because IVF started paying better. So we gave up a chance to, to really diagnose endo and treat endo. I'm a big believer in give the diagnosis early so that we can actually come up with interventions to stop the terrible spread of the disease. We can come up with interventions to identify women who are going to need fertility preservation early. And I think the data is likely to bear out that if we can do some of these things, we're going to preserve ovarian reserve, we're going to preserve future fertility, and we're going to make this less of a debilitating chronic condition and just a chronic condition. I just want to know, it's such a, a difficult disease. I mean, obviously for, for both patient and providers, you know, the patients have a lot of pain and they want to get pregnant ASAP and, and treating the pain as well as uh, getting pregnant, unfortunately, there are two different things, you know, two different treatments. But, you know, you also think about, you know, and I agree with you, Pietro, but I'm just thinking about in terms of the patient who has horrible, severe pelvic pain from endo and you get in, she maybe has like a couple of tiny little lesions in the pelvis, like one or two tiny lesions. And so, you know, your, your treatment overall, even if you do or do not do the laparoscopy, you still may ultimately just do ovarian stimulation and IUI as opposed to IVF. So, you know, your treatment may not necessarily change, but the spectrum is just, it's such, it's such a different spectrum on how severe is the endo. Does that mean we need to go straight to IVF? How old's the patient? You know, there's just so many things to take into consideration and it's just such a complex uh, process for both the patient and the provider. So the failure there for me, Blake, is the patient who probably went several years with small volume disease causing central sensitization of pain. And she probably has an outsized response to what look like visually small lesions, but centrally it feels like the whole pelvis is on fire. And maybe, and I think the data needs to bear this out, early intervention through identification and surgery for that patient may have really moved the dial and may have actually made them feel a lot better sooner, but hopefully also gotten them pregnant. Agreed. Good points.
All right, let's pivot hard. I have last article for the for this month, and it also happens to be a cool little study published by our own Dr. Molly Cornfield, our executive producer. So I'm glad that Molly's here to eloquently discuss the study after I try to tell you what I gleaned from this study. So I chose this article because I was actually asked this specific question by a patient last week. In women with a recurrent pregnancy loss diagnosis, we're choosing to undergo IVF with PGTA, are we to expect that the rates of aneuploidy are the same in this population compared to women who are infertile but without an RPL diagnosis? Do I need to counsel these patients differently based on the pre-existing loss history? Well, to answer this question, Molly and her colleagues took 294 patients between 2016 and 2017 which 56 had an RPL diagnosis and 238 did not. And the primary outcome of the study was really to look at embryonic aneuploidy rates. Secondary outcomes were the stuff that are important to every IVF patient, but particularly RPL patients undergoing PGT, fertilization rates, blastulation rates, the number of actual embryos available for biopsy and the number of cycles in which a euploid embryo was available. Kudos to them for actually reporting some reproductive outcomes. They actually looked at pregnancy loss, pregnancy rates, and live birth rates after transfer of the euploid embryos that they generated from these cycles. On average, this wasn't a terribly old cohort. This was average age of 37. But the kind of big takeaway finding here, the, the top line here to remember is that the aneuploidy rates were no different between patients with versus those without an RPL diagnosis. 55 versus 54%, which is kind of the numbers that I use when I counsel 37-year-olds. I don't know if Blake, Molly, you guys use similar numbers. The fertility rates and the blast formation rates were also similar, as were the number of euploid embryos available for transfer. Now, here's a cool finding. The clinical pregnancy rate and the live birth rates overall were similar between the groups, as were the pregnancy loss rates, including biochemicals, ultrasound-confirmed losses, without heartbeats, and losses of previously confirmed clinical pregnancies. So to me, that's kind of cool. There's a, some data here that kind of conflicts a little bit with other studies that have looked at PGTA in the RPL population, but it's nice to see when some of your biases are confirmed in other people's data. But I have the benefit of having Molly here. Molly, will you tell me a little bit about what the idea was when you guys decided to look at this question? Did this come from the clinic or did this come from the lab? How did, how did you get to this question? Yeah, thank you so much for featuring my article today. And I'm so excited that it was published in FNS reports. So thank you, first of all. So this was actually a resident research project. So it started when I was a intern. And at that time, it came from the clinic. We had a question of, is it worth doing IVF for RPL patients? Or is their aneuploidy rate so high? Is their prognosis so poor that it's not worth it for them? And you say, just keep trying. And a lot of that sentiment was based on older papers um, that primarily looked at an AMA and DOR population with RPL and primarily looked at um, day three biopsies using FISH technology. And so we had the question, how should we, we be counseling these RPL patients? And when they come to us asking for IVF, now, the caveat for this paper is that we were still feeling that way. We were still remembering those old studies when we were caring for these patients clinically, because this is a retrospective study. It's not prospective. And so the RPL patients that were selected to go through IVF and PGT and counseled towards that by providers probably were a better prognosis group for whatever reason. But with that caveat, we did still see pretty good outcomes. We still saw similar aneuploidy rates. And I think, you know, I haven't seen the full picture on this yet, but I really think a lot of our RPL patients just have really receptive uterine linings. 
back to the study we talked about earlier today, that anti-inflammatory inflammatory, inflammatory um, combination and the way that it's interacting with the embryo is just overly receptive. Molly, I was so excited to see your paper as well. And I love when I see fellows names on, on papers in FNS. It just it makes my heart happy. So um, I'm just curious, uh, how do you counsel your patients now on, you know, one of the most commonly utilized reasons for PGTA in the country is for RPL. So based off your findings, how, how do you counsel them? Do you just say, just keep trying, take progesterone and, you know, we'll cross our fingers or, you know, what, I'm just curious as to how you all practice in your clinic. It's a very patient-centered decision. I can only speak to how I'm, I'm counseling my patients, which is, of course, um, a combination of my four faculty attendings who have trained me, but it's very patient-centered uh, based on thinking about their age, thinking about how many children they want and how that might guide IVF. Do they have other factors that are limiting fertility, how they have ectopic pregnancy, something that would push me more towards IVF. And then also knowing the patient and their emotional state and what do they fear most and talking about the risk of another miscarriage, talking about the risk of a failed or canceled IVF cycle, which can uh, hold a lot of grief for patients as well. And then making sure they know that even with IVF, um, even with PGT, there is a risk of miscarriage. And then also talking about the limitations of PGT, which I think is a controversy and something we're talking about more in the past few years, that these aren't perfect tests um, and we may be... uh, throwing away good embryos. So um, we're seeing decent pregnancy outcomes with uh, embryos with some degree of mosaicism. There is a very, very small, but real risk of damage to an embryo as well. I counsel that as less than 3% um, with PGT. Uh, So a lot of factors and the patient's uh, decision-making being most important. I like to dichotomize it based on the age of the RPL patient. I think if you have a young RPL patient with good ovarian reserve, it's a very different patient than the one who's 39, 40, 42 with poor ovarian reserve. I'm going to treat them a little bit differently. And I may be a little bit more forceful in my recommendation to really isolate um, embryonic chromosomal aneuploidy um, as a major determinant of RPL in the older patient than I am in the younger patient. But it's so much of it is sheer decision-making, particularly with what can they emotionally afford loss-wise? What can they financially afford with or without insurance coverage? Shared decision-making is the heart of of so much of what we do. And I think more so in RPL patients, because they've already gone through a lot. They have a lot of lived experience with with loss, with failure, oftentimes with IVF already. And now we're throwing in something that's expensive. There's some questions on its clinical utility and we're asking them to do to their embryos. All right, folks, it doesn't get better than that. Three great articles and the first author of one of our articles this month joining us for the podcast. As always, Dalen, Blake, Molly, it's great to be back with you. We'll have another episode put together next month, again, reviewing the science coming out in FNS reports, reviews, and FNS science. If you enjoy this podcast, you're probably already listening to the Mothership podcast, FNS On Air. That's a monthly podcast that we run through the table of contents for the main FNS journal and pluck out some of our favorite ones to talk about. Until we meet again next time, I'm Pietro Borletto, media editor for FNS Reports, signing off. Goodbye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield.
This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.